Welcome to the Cocktail Cowgirl podcast. My name is Steph Lancefield. Today we are joined by David Norbury, who I'm very lucky to call a close friend and has probably been the biggest influence on my writing um, since I started reigning. Uh, just a really genuine, honest, down-to-earth guy that has made a huge impact in the Western performance horse industry over 50-odd years. So thanks so much, David, for joining me today. Thanks, Steph. What a great introduction that was. <laughs> so, Dave, we're here at your property at King Lake. It's a beautiful, sunny day. Tell us, you know, how long have you been at the property here? And um, just a little bit of, of history about, you know, where you started. Okay, so the property's at King Lake West. Um, we've been here since 1986. Uh, we put the arena up around about 30 years ago, the indoor arena, um, because I couldn't possibly train up here. <laughs> Not with in the King weather, Lake. With the weather, you yeah. know, we've been snowed in several times with well over a foot of snow. Uh, but look, I do train up here uh, full time. And um, yes, it's been a wonderful career over those years. We've had a lot of ups and downs like anyone does have in any sort of business, especially horse training and that. That's generally dictated by horses that you're riding, um, the, the people that are around you and all those sorts of things. So all in all, it's been a wonderful career. So for those that have, are not familiar with King Lake, I think a lot of people are, it is the sort of place that you can be coming out of the sunshine, beautiful, you know, summer's day and you drive into King Lake and it's fog and drizzle and, you know, very inclement weather. So you've got a, a fantastic indoor here that has probably served you very well over the years. You're only on a small property in comparison to what probably most other horse trainers train out of. Is it five acres? Yeah, it's only five acres. And when we moved onto the property, there wasn't anything on here other than a, a 20 by 10 foot shed that was on the undulating ground and they put it on there, poured a slab as well, where everything was on an angle. It was <laughs> it was crazy. So we had to pull that shed down, rip up all the concrete, but that was the only thing here. So we were very lucky in the fact that we had a clean slate to work with. So we placed the house in the middle, put the stables and the arena up in one corner, which gave us access to three other paddocks that we used for putting the horses out through the day. Yeah, so you definitely made the most of what you've had here you know I think any horse trainer when they're starting out it's probably been in the same situation where you know you can only afford what you can afford and they're not you know buying the 150 acre property is normally something you do when you're more uh you know set up and developed in your career so you know on your five acres you've got a stable barn you've got outdoor yards undercover yards and three paddocks and you have had you know up to sort of 12 15 horses in work and to make that work in a five acre block is pretty, I think, pretty unheard of, but it's it, it's a testament to your dedication to, to do what you've done for so long. So, Yeah, well, we do have it set up pretty well. We've got the stables. We've got eight stables up there undercover. Then I have um, five undercover outdoor yards. It just has a roof on them. And then we have seven day yards, which doesn't have a roof on them. So we have the flexibility to change the horses in and out of those yards and stables. Also, too, because of the three paddocks, we rotate the horses every other day into those paddocks so they're not just standing in yards all the time. Mm. So they get that freedom to move around, to graze, to roll, to get muddy. Um, yeah, so it worked well. It yeah. worked really well. Yeah, no, it's. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, horse trainers starting out that, you know, sometimes you forget where you've got to start to get to, you look at these more, you know, 
um, accomplished trainers, for a better word, not that you're unaccomplished, but you, other people that have got big flash barns, this, that, the other, and it's like you've got to start somewhere and you're probably just lucky that you were smart enough to build a functional, you know, well-developed, easy-to-use property that you've never had to leave. Well, it's true, but I do remember the days when I had my outdoor arena here. Here. Here, <laughs> yes. And I distinctly remember going to a, a show up in Tamworth and had to get these horses ready. And I was riding in my arena with gumboots on, spurs strapped to my gumboots because my other boots were just soaked through, a dryzer bone on, cowboy hat on with a, a plastic cover, trying to ride my horses and it was horrible horrible but still got the job done and that so you know having a roof if you're going to be a professional trainer it's not essential that you have a roof but up in this climate you you really do need it and even even for the hot days like today is really warm so being able to keep that sun off your head is really good our arena only has one side um covered in entirely which is the northern side the two east and west sides are open, so we have that flow of air. Um, people say to me, doesn't it get cold in wintertime? But like, I mean, you can't have a heater in there. But once you get on that first horse and start riding around, we all warm up. Oh, no, there's no perfect climate for training there's horses. Not. The, hard, you know, it's... the hardest thing is walking out of the house yeah. after lunch or something or after <laughs> breakfast to come out into the cold, but it doesn't take long to acclimatise. No. It's a, it's a really great property and a lot of great memories here from a lot of people over a lot of years. So let's uh, hook into this, though. You have had a massive career in the horse industry spanning, you know, over multi-disciplines many, many years. Let's, though, we've spoken about your childhood and everyone wants to know about, you know, where you started and whatnot. And you've got such a, a beautiful story as a kid. You grew up in a similar area in Melbourne, in the suburbs, you grew up in Heidelberg. I grew up in Rosanna, Eaglemont, which is just down the road. And tell me a little bit about, you know, your childhood and your first pony and how you kind of got from just doing the paper route into being one of the most renowned Western horse trainers in the country. Well, <laughs> you know, we're born, we're born uh, into whatever career or hobbies that we want to have my my siblings they my brother he he works for nasa so he has about i don't know about 100 scientists under him um so he's the lead scientist over in for nasa um he's been inducted into the hall of fame four or five years ago my sister she's a solicitor uh, my younger brother he's a leading scientist for land care over in new zealand um and i've i've always had that passion for horses ever since i can remember to the point where i remember making a bridle for my dog <laughs> bit and all <laughs> and that's just come back to me now um so and i remember i've got a little stool in my lounge room here that i used to sit on and pretend that was a horse and i still have that stool here and uh, it used to be at my mother's place, and when she passed, I wanted to have that stool back here because it reminded me of, of my childhood. But mum and dad used to take me and my siblings horse riding um, a lot down at Rosebud. We would go down there and just hire a horse. My siblings came along just because it was an activity, but to me it was the highlight of, of the year sort of thing. So... We'd go down there and ride the horses, and I always had in my mind that I wanted to save up and buy a horse for myself. 
My father and mum, they couldn't afford to buy me a horse. We had nowhere to put it. As you said, we lived in uh, in West Heidelberg, so there was no paddocks there. So what I did, I went and searched out for a block of land. So we were very close to an industrial area. And I searched out this vacant block of land. I found out from the people that were in the factory on one side of the land who owned the place. He was an engineer in Templestowe. I was able to get his phone number. (laughs) Remember, this is when I was 13 years old. So I rang this fellow up and told him what I wanted to do if I could rent his property. And the property had a really high security fence on um, all the way around it. So that was good as well. So I went and introduced myself and he was more than happy just to let me use the block. Um, so securing the block, I knew I had somewhere to keep a horse. So I already had a paper round and I took on an additional two other paper rounds to save up for this horse. I can't remember how long it took me, but it it certainly took me a long time to save up $110 for this horse that her name was Gypsy. She was advertised in, I think it was the Age newspaper at the time. And the Age newspaper on a Saturday would literally have hundreds of horses listed in it for sale. You don't see that now, of course, but that's that's where I found the horse through the advertisement in the Age newspaper. As I said, it only came out on a Saturday. So... I had the money, I rang the guy up, I purchased the horse, her name was Gypsy, she was a gorgeous horse, uh, bay horse, and she had an unusual mark on, well not a mark, but a piece missing out of her ear, it was like a V-shape that was about 10 millimetres in depth, I guess, cut out of her ear. It was very distinctive, Um, I don't know how she ever got that, but anyhow, I always knew that's my horse because she's got that. Got an earmark. <laughs> an earmark, I know. But look, I had it for 12 months and I had many wonderful times. I learned to ride bareback because I couldn't afford a saddle. So back in the day, we had suitcases that had straps that you would tie around to the outside of suitcase to make sure the lid stayed shut. Like a surcingle for a suitcase. Like, like a surcingle. My father, his part-time job was a fruiterer. Mm-hmm. So we would, I would have to actually bag up potatoes for dad and get a bit of extra um, pineapple, an extra, <laughs> extra, <Pocket> extra, <laughs> extra bit of pocket money um, to save up for a horse, of course. But uh, the potato bags I would use to put over my horse's back. Then I would get this strap and run it around her belly and tie it on so that the bag wouldn't fall off. So I, I learnt to ride bareback very, very well. You didn't um, have a choice, did you? So when you when you went and tried this, did you go and, like, let's do a bit of a comparative. So back, what do you remember how, what year it was when you bought Gypsy? Would have been 1971, I think. Okay, so did you go and take your instructor and trial her and... Of course I did. Of course I did. I took my dad, who had <laughs> was a fruiterer. I thought he was the perfect person to see if this horse is going to suit me. <laughs> and did you did you ride her around there? Of course or I rode her around. And do you know where we rode her? On the road. On the paddock? on the road. Only in the road. The horse was brought. So the ho- I bought the horse in McLeod. 
he brought the horse to his house in a yep. horse float and I trotted her up and down the road. It was just a side street, so yep. there was no traffic. Trotted her up and down the road and thought, well, this is good. Um, <laughs> didn't get bucked off? <laughs> no, I didn't get bucked off. She, she didn't do anything mm. naughty like that. But um, So there's a little bit of a story with Gypsy, though, and we're going to put out a call here just in the off chance that anyone out there in the world might have seen her in the 70s. It's a highly unlikely scenario, but you never know what might turn up. So tell us what happened with Gypsy. Okay, so I eventually moved her out of the small paddock that she was in and moved her up to a trotting uh, trotting stud up in Green Hills Road in Bandura. We'll come back to the Green Hills Road part a little bit later because I work for a place called Green Hills Stud, but anyhow... I kept her at this adjustment place where they had the trotters and so forth. And it was about a year into owning her. And I went up one day on my push bike, rode from West Heidelberg to get up there, which I did every single night. And I couldn't find my horse. And what had happened, there was a lot of the other horses that were missing as well. So someone had opened the gate, all the horses got out. They got all the horses back except for my gypsy. I was 13 years old. I just remember bawling my eyes out. I was just so upset about it. But over the course of time, and it was about 12 months after she disappeared, my dad, every free weekend or any time after work that he had spare time, that we would go everywhere and look for this horse. It, I'll never forget that, the, the time he put in trying to find this horse for me. Um, it was just wonderful. But we never found her. I was always heartbroken, but, you know, I got over it. Today I was showing you photos of it, wasn't I, Steph? Yeah, it's amazing. You've got a beautiful photo album with images of her. So if anyone out there ever found a lost horse in the Bandura region with an earmark and never knew where she came from, please contact David Norbury <laughs> to put his heart at rest that she had a nice life. But that's, you know, talking um, to, you know, our first episode was with Kate Elliott and I think, you know, so many of these fantastic horse professionals over the years, it's amazing to hear that we all kind of started out in a similar spot. We're not from horsey families and just loved horses and just did anything that you could to be around them. So what was it that sparked your interest in horses, do you think? Um, just the mere fact I was born with horses in my blood. And I, I don't know how many times I've seen it over the years. People have had a, a break from horses for whatever reason. They might have even become tired of being around the horses and that, but they ultimately come back to them because they're in their blood. Mm. It's, it's in your DNA. It's, um, it's like an obsession. It's an absolute obsession. You know, it's like a tennis player. It's a, like my, my brothers, you know, they've got their interests and my sister, of course. Um, so to be able to make a career out of an interest is, is just a great thing to be able to do. So you're, you come from, a, you're one of four children. Correct. Um, chatting to you before about your siblings' professions and uh, we had a little bit of a touch on the fact that they're, they're all very academic um, as you mentioned, one of your brothers works for NASA. You, one of your, your sister is a solicitor. One brother works high up in Landcare. They've got all these fantastic awards. And we chatted about, you know, growing up as a kid, feeling the pressure of not being one of the academics. But, you know, how did you navigate your way through that as a kid and, and being the horse kid? Um, did that sort of affect you and your 
you know, your choices as a adolescent or were you so hell bent on the horses that, you know, you were just passionate about your thing and, and stuck with that? It's interesting. I never, I never knew what I was going to do when I became an adult. <clears throat> of course, I wanted desperately to do something with the horses. That, that, there was no doubt about that, but I just didn't know how that was going to happen. So when I left school, I started off as a mechanic, a motor mechanic. I had an apprenticeship with the government. So I did that for about three months because I used to like tinkering, tinkering around with vehicles and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I realised after that three-month period, I, di I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be under a car the whole time. So I left that job and ended up getting a, a job for Australia Post. So that was down in Rosanna. So that gave me the hours that really suited me. So we started at six in the morning, finished at about lunchtime, one o'clock at the latest. Then I had the rest of the day to myself. Um, so I did purchase another horse and I kept that on, on a property up in Bandura. And then I started training that horse, just not knowing really what I was doing. I eventually met another fella called Neil Sist who owned Pine Lodge cutting horse stud in Shepparton. And a lot of the cutters would remember that stud. He had um, a horse called Ato, which was trained by Ray Marshall, who was an outstanding cutting horse. He also did reining on him back in the day. He also had the sprint bred horse, Three Devils, which produced a lot of progeny, um, a lot of race winners throughout Australia as well, when sprint racing was very big. So Neil actually gave me the opportunity to take on a couple of his horses and just train them where I kept them at the time, which was Parade College in Bandura, opposite yeah. Green Hills Road, strangely enough. So there was one of the brothers there called Brother Walsh. He's now passed, but uh, he, was, he was a great horseman. And um, not that he ever showed, but he showed me how to break horses, be around horses. And that's then he used to also teach the kids at Parade College. They had a, a they were one of the first ones to have a riding school on the property because they not only had the school, which was Parade College, but at the back of the school they had Edmund Rice College, which was primarily a working dairy farm, but they also bred horses. Mm -hmm. Brother Walsh would uh, run the riding school two days a week. He didn't want to do it anymore because he was too busy on the farm. So he asked me if I wanted to take that over. So I taught there for nine years part-time. So, that, the kids so that was your job from starting your motor mechanic apprenticeship into the... Post the, office. The post office, yeah. And then once I'd finished at the post office through you, the day, I would go in the afternoon to teach the kids how to ride the So horse, that's, you're a very good coach. And I, I think, you know, I don't think anyone in the Western industry, in Victoria at least, has at, everyone's had a lesson with you at some point or another. Um, so it's no surprise that you've got that background in coaching, you know, and I would assume back then it was just people wanting to learn to ride, not necessarily training to do a, a sport. And I think that really is, you know, talking to Kate Elliott the other day as well, she taught me when I was a kid at a place called Ponyland, which is a riding school at Christmas Hills, and we, we spoke about that ability to teach just anyone on random horses essentially and, you know, paying city kids that come in and want to learn and that is a different skill set in itself, which enables you to run things like clinics and do 
larger group activities because you had to keep the attention of a large group of people that maybe all weren't as competent or on, on experienced horses. So it yeah, doesn't surprise me that you've got, you know, you had a, a teaching background not in a general riding school situation. It's, but, um, yeah. You know, that's very true and I've never looked at it that way, but my whole career I've always taught, even before I was a professional, I've always taught and teaching the kids, you know, that had its challenges. I, I do recall at one stage we had several Vietnamese kids come out and I don't know why they were at the school. They must have had a Vietnamese teacher because they could not speak English at all. So it was all sign language to get these poor guys to learn how to saddle, to learn how to bridle up a horse, you know, to ride and all those sorts of things. Um, that was quite the challenge. But you adapt though, don't you? Even, you do, absolutely you know, you do. Doing what you're doing now, I even teaching people that speak English English as their first language, sometimes doing what we do, they look at us like we're speaking Chinese and you have to adapt it in a way that they do understand it and they can learn. And I think your teaching style is so unique um, and, you know, touching back on that, you know, your siblings are very high academics, but to me your your own academic in the way that your, your ability to teach and train, whether it's horses or people, like I think you are, you know, probably one of the best coaches I've ever come across in your methodology, method, <laughs> we were trying to pronounce this word before, methodical style of training and you're so theory-based and so correct um, that, you know, it's you are as academic as your family. It's, yeah, no surprise that you've been as, as good as you are um, and, yeah, it's, it's a real testament i think to you the way you're raised i think everything comes back to you obviously really close with your family you still talk to all your brothers and sisters your mum and dad were very supportive of you growing up and i think that's probably enabled you to you know really hone in on your on your skills and um yeah so it's really nice to hear that that you come from such a good strong family it, 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 I've been very lucky, very lucky. And, you know, I think we all become the person we are because of the people behind us, you know, yeah. including family, including, um, you know, your, your partners, your wives and all that sort of thing. So, and it's very true um, with anything that you do, I think, in life, you've got to be very methodical about it. Um, know where you're heading with what you're trying to achieve, whether you're teaching people or teaching horses. There's no one particular way to teach a person or a horse, so there's probably 50, 60, 100, 1,000 different ways to get to one point. Everyone is coming from different directions, mm -hmm. heading to that one point, and that's the wonderful thing about training people and horses. There's so many various ways that you can get there. Mm. No, that's really cool. So you were coaching at the riding school. Were you, like from there, where did you go? Is that, were you teaching a, a Western style of riding there or was it English riding? What were you doing? So they did have a couple of Western saddles there. It wasn't English, uh, sorry, it wasn't um, uh, Western or English per se. It was just stay on the horse and don't fall off the goddamn thing. <laughs> yeah, kick and pull. <laughs> kick and pull, yeah. Um, so that that's all it was. It wasn't refined whatsoever. Yeah. Um, from there, because I did have um, Neil Sist's horses, I was able to train them up. He had one particular stallion also called Tom Hancock, who was by Tom's bid out of a mare called Miss Shuffler, also sprint bred. And Tom was probably the horse that I 
started off on and started to win certain things. Um, whether it be pl- I, I, back in the day, you would train for many different events. So I would do trail on him. I'd try and do Western pleasure. I'd do raining. I'd try and do Western riding. So we were always taught back then like no one had a horse that did one particular event we all did many many different events on our horses and that's what i feel very privileged to have been in that era coming into the industry where you got a diverse background of of how to train in these different events i think it just makes you um, a, a better horse person it keeps the interest certainly for me kept the interest of training the whole time, keeps the interest of the horse being able to do these different events and so forth. Um, I think that's really important, really mm. important. So Keep what, that interest up. Yeah, that's that's so true. So where, tell us a little bit, Neil Sist, what yep. was his background? Tell us a little bit more about him because he was obviously an influential person to you. Um, what was it that, you know, that sparked, you know, your relationship with him? Okay, he put an advertisement in a magazine when I was looking for horses to purchase and it would have been in the Australian Quarter Horse magazine, I'm assuming. Um, and he had a stud in Shepparton, which I said, which was Pine Lodge. Which is still there today. Yep. No, no, it's not. Isn't no, it? It's not, no, it's, it's not, not there. It's not called Pine Lodge it's, anymore? No, no, I don't know who owns it now. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what's happened to the property, I assume, because yeah. he'd be a much older man now. So, so I know that Pine Lodge was then owned by the Farnhams in yeah, no, Shepparton. No, Chance Lodge. Oh, Chance Lodge, yeah. right. Okay, yeah. my bad. Chance, Chance Lodge. Lodge. So many al- lodges. <laughs> That's right. There was also another Pine Lodge up, uh, equestrian centre up in Queensland, I yeah. believe, where they used to hold a lot of raining shows back in the day. Yeah. But um, the reason I got on to Neil was because he had the address of the stud, but his phone number was down in Bandura, and I lived in the next suburb over, which was West Heidelberg. So I rung him up, and that's where the connection started. He had this stud. He lived locally. Mm -hmm. He was a doctor in, um, um, in Bandura, so a general practitioner. And him and I got on so well. It was terrific. So he allowed me to train his stallion, show him. And that's where things really started to take off with me showing horses. Did he coach you? No, not at all. So how did you learn to train his horses to show? (laughs) (laughs) I fumbled around. There was no clinics to go to. I read magazines and that. I remember reading, I think it was Australian Western Horsemen with Phil Webb and Tarita Webb. They used to put articles in there. I think it was monthly. And I used to love reading the articles and that. And I, I caught up with Phil not so long ago at the Australia's Greatest Horsewoman that. Uh, show. And him and I uh, co-judged uh, together. It was just great to catch up with this, this guy who was just an icon to me when I very first started. He's still, I don't know if he's, he's still, still showing, but he's still doing showing, yep. And he's just a great horseman, yeah. great horseman, you know. Yeah. So, so that's uh, really cool because Phil Webb is, you know, at the moment everyone you know he's very popular clinician he he's got right back into it and, and really promoting the rain cow horse thing so it's amazing to see those people that have been doing it you know for so long and still passionate about the industry so absolutely so 
you then started showing in the it was it AQHA was that what you were showing under yeah, then? That's right. Yep. So mm. the AQHA all round events. Yeah, AQHA and HSAA Horse Show Association of Australia. Yeah. Uh, their club shows and that. And um, I went to as many shows as I could. I went to agricultural shows. Anytime I was always looking in the the weekly times. Mm. They would have the shows advertised there. You'd ring them up. You know, you'd go go along to the show, put your entries in used to get a little ticket, you'd pay for your ticket and he'd hand that ticket to the gate steward and then go in. I think the events might have been $2 an event to enter. Oh, finally. <laughs> but I, yeah, I know that's right. But I remember going to these agricultural shows and my horses were pretty good when I took them there, but oh my God, some of the horses would just go off their nut because of all the different things, you know, that are associated with an agricultural show and that. Um, so, yeah, it was quite quite the eye-opener. That's unreal. Quite the eye-opener. So from there, how, you know, we're all familiar with you, you worked for the Green Hill Stud for a long time. Was that, was that close to then or what, what happened between? Yeah, so 1990 I started working for Green Hill. That's when uh, Lukey Young, who owned Melbourne Mushrooms, mm-hmm. Um, she built an arena in Whittlesea and it was state of the art at the time. She used to have Paul and Sue Farrell working for her prior to 1990. And when they left, she offered me the job. And at the time I was, um, a postman. Mm -hmm. I was married to my then wife, Karen. We lived in King Lake West. She offered me the job and I thought it was the opportunity of a lifetime. And that's just how things happen in a person's life. You know, think these opportunities come to you, you either turn them down or you take them on. And I took them on and it was wonderful. That's where my my professional career started. And I just learned so much from there. And as as we do throughout your career, you're always learning. And that's so um, that's where it started. That's right. So were you training? Did she have all round horses there? You were training horses for everything? Or was she more focused on the pleasure or the reining? What was the The whole the whole shebang? And and you had was it just a training facility? Were you breeding horses? She okay, so she had the training center, which was in Milky Lane in Whittlesea. And then probably five kilometres from there in Scrubby Creek Road in Whittlesea, she had the breeding facility. So that's where she lived. Mm -hmm. And she had another indoor arena there that she would ride the horses there. And she had a person that would break the horses in there as well. Then they'd send them over to the training facility. So it was really good. It it, it was great, you know, to be riding in an indoor arena, um, have these stables, the facilities, the outdoor yards. We had a hot walker. We had the whole lot. It was just fantastic. Mm, I I remember it so well. In the early 90s, you know, that having the opportunity to be paid to work in a facility like that, it would be pretty special and, you know, there wasn't probably a lot of opportunities to do something like that. That's um, right, yeah, So, exactly. you know, for you going out on your own there, that, that was probably a, a fantastic stepping stone into coming, you know, into your own property because, you know, it's one thing to have a fancy facility like that with all the bells and whistles and then when you've got to go and build it and pay for it and foot it on your own, it's a different story, isn't it? It's a totally different story. So I worked for Lukey for two and a half years mm-hmm. And then we had a bit of a falling out and then for about a year or so, and then she invited me back again. Um, And so I worked for her for another two and a half years and 
things just happened and it just wasn't working out quite well. And um, so I decided just to go off on my own. Mm -hmm. And that included spending money to build an indoor arena. So my house back at the time cost $52,000 to build the house. My arena cost $60,000 and I it was a huge amount back mm -hmm. then, you know, but to build my same arena now would be at least a couple of hundred thousand oh, dollars. And so, uh, yeah, and more, yeah. yeah, for sure. So I feel very fortunate about that. So the arena's been up since uh, 1993. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's been up quite a while. So a lot so, of horses are gone around. They are definitely a lot of horses have come through this place. So let's just go back to Green Hills a little bit. You would have ridden a lot of horses at the time you were there and showed a lot of great horses, is there any sort of standout ones that you remember that really, you know, you learnt from and you had great success with? Yeah, most definitely. So um, there was no show... Well, her, her mainstay was decked in chrome and he'd already been trained up by Paul Farrell. He did reining, he did Western pleasure, he did cutting. He was a very versatile horse. I showed him, not, not a whole lot, but I did show him in that, with some success, but I had to start from scratch and train my own horses up and prove myself. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I was just going there and stepping on trained horses and showing them. So the first horse I had was a full brother to Decton Chrome called Greenhill Sparkling Morn. He was a two-year-old. We had him broken in, and then I just started training him up for Western Pleasure doing what I thought was the correct thing to do, not using legs, just using your hands, running the bit through the mouth to get the neckline down, trying to just fumble my way through to making go slow and collected and that sort of thing. And it wasn't working great, you know, I, was, I, I knew I'd struggle a little bit. And what changed completely for me, one of the big changing points in my life was when Bernard McEnany, who's now passed, and Janet Gill back in the day, um, they were training partners, not partners per se, but training partners. Janet's still around. Her, her surname's Jones now. She's married to Carl. Um, just wonderful people. But Bernard and Janet came down and did a clinic at Green Hill, and they were the ones that told me or showed me how to use my legs when riding a horse, driving a horse up with your legs to create collection. And it was to something just totally new to me. I thought you put a leg on a horse to make it go forward, uh, to side pass, and that was it. I didn't understand the concept of collecting a horse up with your legs. So that was a massive turning point in my career and um, I've often thanked well I did thank them a lot and um, yeah that was terrific so that has stayed with me for the rest of my life and I quite often quote or not quote but say to people that don't use their legs I've said this many times say righto let's not use your legs hop on that push bike there grab the handlebars and see how far down the road you can go without using your legs. Mm -hmm. And the same thing applies to training a horse. You cannot train a horse without using your legs. Mm. Yeah, and it's definitely something that even myself coming from a, an English riding background, which 
uh, I use the term English riding. It was just general riding. I think when we were kids, same thing. We just stayed on, kicked and pulled. And it, learning and developing that ability to use use your legs to, you know, pick the horses back up and drive their hindquarter up underneath them and get them to push their hip where you want it. It's, um, yeah, you can't, you can't train them without the ability to use your legs. So definitely. Um, <laughs> but you saying that, that that's how you started out. That's how a lot of us start out. And it, it's, you know, you go through that process and then someone influential or someone that you listen to comes along and says, hey, listen here. They totally change and, it. They totally yeah. change it. And so getting back to Green Hill Sparkling Morn, he was a two-year-old. I rode him. I started to use my legs on him, creating this collection, getting him to put his neckline down into a horizontal position getting him to travel on a loose rein, I was thinking, what the hell, how am I doing this? <laughs> what um, was I doing wrong before? <laughs> <laughs> and anyhow, cut a long story short, we um, not long, well, I don't, know, it must, I don't know the time frame, maybe six months or seven months, we went to my second interstate show, which was at uh, Sugarloaf, a place called Cobberty Sugar in What's it called? The place was called Sugarloaf, the arena. In Cobbity. In Cobbity. I think that place is still there. It is still there. Yeah. And the National Pleasure Horse Association would run their annual show there. And the highlighted class was the two-year-old Western Pleasure. And they always had 30-plus horses in it. You'd have to do go-rounds and so forth. Everyone wanted to win that event. I go up there on my very first attempt. I win it. I'm absolutely blown away. I can't believe what I've just won. And I didn't realise the impact of it until afterwards, I think. Um, it, it was something that, again, changed my life entirely, mm. having that success. That's mm. unreal. It, it was unreal. And going forward from that, we were talking about that two-year-old futurity class. That wasn't the only time you won that class, was it? No, it wasn't. I uh, I think it was two years later. Um, I won it on on a tough morn, who yes, was also a brother to Green Hill Sparkling Morn, who was also the brother to um, Decked in Chrome. So the three horses... Um, were all related. So Greenhill Sparkling Morn, I won the first MPHA Futurity. I think, as I said, two years later, I won it on I'm a Tough Morn. And then I think another two years after that, I won it on More Than Impressed, who came across from uh, Perth, uh, who was owned by David Nutton. And I won the MPHA Futurity again. And then I got a second, I think maybe in 94, on Judy Cottrell's Yugabar Kalua Boy. So I was blown away with that success. It just happened so quickly and so fast. And all, it all came from using my legs. Mm -hmm. That's where it all came from. And I'll never, ever forget those shows. It was, it was just wonderful. Mm. Did you find having that success so early on and you know we see it now where someone young or new will come through and have a heap of success early on and all of a sudden their head gets a little bit bigger I just couldn't imagine you being like that but did that affect did you just think oh I've got it now I'm going to win everything or did you just keep that methodical training style and just keep doing what you were doing with that you know just going out to do the best that you could yeah I never once had that thought that you know I can just win everything not once yeah. um it's been hard work 
to get these horses trained up, considering also, too, you've got to go through go-rounds and all these mm-hmm. sorts of things. Um, but the... Yes, so, you know, I've always kept working at it and had placings throughout the years. And because I was was training in other events as well, using my legs, I'd also get these horses like Greenhill Sparkling Moor. I made a really good Western riding horse out of him. Um, For those who aren't familiar with Western riding, it's where you've got to do a number of flying lead changes between uh, witches' hats and so forth. Um, but I also turned him into a reigning horse. He could slide, he could spin. He was about 16 hands high, but I just wanted to play around with this stuff. It was it was great to be able to get these horses, you know, that could do the slow stuff, but also do the fast stuff as well and have the confidence that they could come back and do the slow stuff. Mm. Um, that was really cool. And that's what got me more and more involved in... If I had a specific horse where uh, people wanted it for one event, I'd also put other things on the horse, you know, just to keep that horse's interest there as well. If the owners wanted to go and show another at those other events, good and well. If they didn't want to, they can just specialise in one event or two events. It's, uh, yeah. It was up to themselves, yeah. But I love the challenge of seeing what those horses can do. And as I said, that keeps their interest. It really does, as well as my own. Yeah, and you definitely, I could imagine doing we you know we're more focused sort of on the raining now but i I love when we come here for a lesson and there's fifty thousand poles and cones and all kinds of things in the arena and sometimes we curse you but i actually really appreciate that when i do go and do something else and like i'm so glad that you forced me to lope one-handed over 17 poles and (laughs) you know crash my way through it but then you know you work at that and it becomes a challenge and and your horse is just more trained because of it so correct it, it is actually a really great great thing and i know there's so many people that have benefited from you you pretty much forcing us to do it <laughs> it's like you don't have an option but but it's been really good um and it you know goes to show with all the horses that you've trained over the years and you know you just look at them they could go and do any discipline in the in the western realm um and this their training so solid because you go through those steps and you so again come back to that word methodical that training is it sticks so you know it's um yeah it's really it's really great to see that you've done that and kept that over the years like your obviously your interest hasn't wavered from you know back in the 80s 90s that's what you love doing and you still talk, talk about it today you're still loving doing all the disciplines so i really do and um you know like as far as being uh, getting someone to go over some poles or challenge themselves and that I do like that because it then becomes second nature to them uh, where they can do it so very easily Um, yeah it's it's good it's good so from Green Hills you went to your own property here so did you have children at that point or you've got two daughters Two daughters, Stacey yeah. and Courtney. Courtney, the youngest one. Um, Courtney's used to train with me as mm-hmm. well. She um, she had a couple of horses. She had a little pony called Tonto, um, which my we looked for several horses for her, little ponies and that, and most of them had already been through a couple of kids, so they had these bad habits. <laughs> Cut a long story short, we bought this little black pony. We brought it home. My wife at the time, she was only tiny, so she was able to break this pony in. And then the same thing, we trained it up. My wife would train the pony up. My daughter would have lessons on it. and But we got him, the pony, uh, being able to do trail, being able to do raining, being able to do Western pleasure. 
he, he could do all of this stuff. And one of the highlights was when we were down in Whittlesey showing there one time. I think there was about 16 in one of the trail events. And it wasn't the big trails. It was like a beginner trail or something. And Courtney won the trail beating all the adults on this little pony. <laughs> he did not tap a pole. She was able to do the gate, manoeuvre him around all the obstacles. And she ended up on the front cover of their magazine, which I have in my scrapbook there if you look at it later. Oh, that's, that's uh, it's a wonderful time. Yeah. So, so the uh, girls, you, I, they would have been babies when you bought this place or you didn't have children yet when so you... So Courtney was born when we put the... The day that we brought Courtney home, they were building the arena. So mm. she's turning 30 this year. Yep. So mm. how how did you go the juggling act, you know, going out on your own? Like it's a bit of a risk saying, all right, I've, you know, you've got the full-time job at the horse training facility that would have a, a consistent wage to say, right, I'm going to go and invest all this money in running my own facility were you still doing your posty job then did you or were no. you just doing your how, how did you make that work because it's a you know it's a bit scary when you go out and and rely on your own income being self-employed what that's what true that like? so what what i did when i left the post office i was fortunate enough to be able to pay the whole property off mm -hmm. so along with the help of, of karen my my uh my wife at the time we pulled their money we were able to pay the profit property off then we had to, when we put the arena up, we had to get a loan again. So at the time it didn't, well, it was a big loan, of course, but we were able to manage paying the loan repayments. Um, Karen would do the stables. She would do, uh, you know, the school runs, although I helped with the school runs as well, you know, like the kids were only up the, up the end of the road. So either one of us would drop them off and then bring them back and that. Um, so it worked quite well. So Karen was a great support in when I would go away to the horse shows, she would look after the kids and the horses here. It worked really well. So I feel very fortunate that I did have that support from Karen. Yeah. And then, so did both of your daughters ride or was it just Courtney? Both of them rode, but um, Stacey, my eldest daughter, she was more into the motorbikes and basketball and all that sort of stuff. So we did have a pony for her as well. She was a good rider, but it wasn't her passion, yeah. uh, whereas Courtney it was. Um, so, yeah, she trained alongside me for about four or five years. Mm -hmm. Then she moved to Dubbo, and as things turned out, she's no longer training horses. She's running the Greyhound track up there. So mm -hmm. she's the secretary of the Greyhound racing up in Dubbo and really enjoying doing that. It's a big challenge. Yeah. Her partner, he's a plasterer. They're getting married this coming year in October, so that's exciting that'll as well. Be, so exciting. Uh, so, yeah. so let's go back to your, you know, your showing career. You've had such a, we'll call it an illustrious career. There's, you know, I couldn't even count how many buckles and prizes you've got scattered around your home from all of the achievements that you've got. And, you know, do you still look at these buckles and, and have fond memories of those shows that you won and, you know, had these great achievements at? Is there anything that stands out specially to you in your showing career? Like I've got a few that I want to ask you about, but is there anything special to you that, you know, brings to your mind? You know, there's those buckles. I can look at every buckle and, and know where I won it, what horse I was riding when I won it. Um, the buck... Uh, and I've only started taking either the original or a replica buckle 
I don't know, in the last 15 years or something like that, but I've won many buckles prior to that where I wouldn't take the buckles. So what always what always gets me is that I've won the National Pleasure Horse Association two-year-old futurity three times and I don't have a buckle to show for it because oh. <laughs> I gave the buckle to the owners. Yeah. Oh, and it is, it's, I think some people, you know, buckles are one of those things that, you know, I look at your cupboard and there's hundreds of them there. There's a lot, but they're all special to you. But some people, oh, a buckle, they just throw it in the cupboard. They don't really care. It's not about the buckle. But to me, I look at that and I, it's a representation of the achievement. You can look back on that and go, we won that at that event. And it's got the date. It's got the class. It's got that, just that remembrance, I guess, of that moment that you put in all that effort and the, you know, it paid off. So I love coming here and looking at, uh, you know, it's not everyone's thing to display their buckles but I really enjoy you know coming and and I do every time I come here I look at your buckle collection um but you know that is something that you do with your clients is that you know if they you win a class you keep the buckle which you know is is that's in your contract that's the deal I think that's or I take a replica exactly take Mm. take a replica because I think you know some people a buckle means nothing but for you it is really special so I think it's good that you Mm. but you stood for that and said I actually really want to keep those memories alive and I want you know one day your kids to be able to look back and and go through all these things your grandkids or you know me I might just come up here and look at your buckles but you know it's cool that you did that and you sort of set the standard I guess like for me for myself it's you know if I want if I want a really big class on a, on a client's horse and and I would never not want to give an owner a buckle but I would want to get a replica buckle for my own you know just to to have that bit of keepsake for something special that you did so absolutely they as I said they mean the absolute world to me it's good to win the prize money of course yeah. you know yeah, I do take good. percentage of the prize money but the buckles just mean so much to me. It's, um, as you said, it, it's uh, it's you know where you got it from the show. Um, you, know, you know, it's just great. It's mm. just great. I, I can't explain how much they mean to me. Those belt buckles. One in particular, I was showing you earlier. Um, the first belt buckle I won, mm-hmm. and strangely, so the first buckle, belt buckle I won was at the Qantas Quarter Horse State Championships held in Upper Beaconsfield and... Is that the Victorian Equestrian Centre? Was that held up in Upper Beaconsfield? I think it was, yeah, that's right. And Bob Avila was the judge. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. The event that I won was the senior... I think it's called the Senior Bridled Western Riding. I think it's called Bridled Western Riding, um, which is similar to the Senior... So I won that. That was my first buckle. So we go through it again. The Victorian State Championship shows. The event I won was the um, Senior Horse Western Riding. When my daughter won her very first belt buckle, it was at the Victorian, Victorian State Quarter Horse Championship show. The event she won was the Senior Horse Western Riding. It's pretty I, I, special, isn't it? It's bizarre. Yeah, it's bizarre. and she scored a seventy-six on that run. Yeah, right. So that was on a horse called um, His Radical Two. Yeah, Larry. Larry, that's so, it. Larry, yep, still yeah. a horse that we're all very fond of. Yeah, yeah pretty cool horse. So you have had a, a big influence in the pleasure horse. You, you've had some great success there. We also had a look earlier. Oh, my connection with you is through the reigning uh, side of things. Um, 
you've been very influential in training some reigning horses that are still out now showing just as strong as, you know, probably when you first started with them. Uh, a couple of that spring to mind is Tell Me a Story. Did you want to tell me a little bit about him? Tell Me a Story. Um, yeah, we bought him as a yearling. Um, gee whiz, I'm just trying to think. He's breeding now. Um, he's cutting breed. It'll come to me shortly. But we bought him as a yearling and I bought him Smart Little Diablo, who is who he's by from memory. Uh, so we bought him as a Western Pleasure horse, actually. Um, he was a nice-looking horse, and I tried him out for Western Pleasure to go in the two-year-old Western Pleasure, and he wasn't good enough. So I, I had a different horse which I put in, which was a client's horse, so I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with him. So I just kept training him for Western Pleasure and trail, Then I thought I'd start him on some reining manoeuvres and so forth, and... He turned out to be pretty damn good doing these reining manoeuvres. So cut a long story short, when I eventually took him to the three-year-old futurity and that was at Horse World from memory in Sydney, um, he got second to Ian Francis in the three-year-old futurity. And I can't remember the difference in the points and that, but uh, it was a great run. He did a really cool run. Um, Then he got second at the Equitana, the first Equitana, that was back in 2000, so 24 years ago, my God. I was there. Were you really? You would have no, I would have had no idea who you were, but I was there, I remember. Yeah. We watched that. Yeah. Gina Eddy won it on Caddy's, Caddy's, oh, I can't even remember her horse's name now. (laughs) Caddy's, Caddy's something, but um, she did a wonderful run, but we got second there. Um, so he, he was a great horse. He went on to win the Victorian Derby uh, once. Then the second year I'd broken my wrist and I got second there. He won just many, many things. I always remember going into the arena, showing that horse. I never had to worry about him taking off or doing anything goofy. He, he always gave me everything. He's, his lead change, he never missed a lead. He, he'd always stop. Um just a good horse, you know. He'd always slow down for you. Just a great horse to ride. Mm, and great he went on went on to be successful with a number of other people. He did. As well. He he um, he was bought by a client of mine, and then she had a marriage breakup, and then uh, Bert Huber, his daughter Leonie Huber, they were from New Zealand. They purchased him, took him to New Zealand, won a lot of stuff over there. They came back to Australia, continued showing him, um, then. Um, Greg Peters eventually bought him and then him and his daughter, they did very well on him as well. And unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago. Greg found him out in the paddock. It looked like he'd had a mouthful of, of hay and he just fell down. He was found next to the fence with some hay in his mouth. So we, we just hoping he just had a heart attack. He was like 22 or 23 from memory. So, um, And he was inducted into the Reigning Australia Hall of Fame. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Indeed yeah. he was. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's pretty special that, you know, a horse that you started and trained and it went on to have so such, you know, a great lifespan as a show horse. And I remember when I first started reigning, watching Shelley Peters show him up at New South Wales and just thinking, oh, just a, such a nice horse. No idea who he was. Mm. or I just remember saying he's just a big, beautiful, solid chestnut, you know, big 
blaze and right. just a nice horse and um, had no idea of his background or, you know, his success over the years. But even then as an older horse, he was, you just watch him and just think, oh, just such a nice solid yeah. horse. So there's, you know, and another horse that comes to mind, and this is only my, you know, I've been in the reigning for a long, long time, but um, I know Kim Grosso's got the horse DC Cadillac oh, Jack. Another great horse, great all round horse. But they come out and show that horse now and yeah. every time Bonnie shows up, you're like, oh. Just give her the buckle. You know, but that horse is just such a solid show horse. And I know they've, you know, they've had him for a long time, but you had great success with that oh, horse earlier on too. Yeah, he was terrific. Gee, he was, he was another stoic, just a great-minded horse, you know. And I've always said about horses, you know, I know we, we need to look at their confirmation and so forth, but I couldn't give a damn about their confirmation so long as their mind's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a horse that... Um, well, we should go on about DC Cadillac Jack. Like he again, we showed him in pleasure, Western riding, trail, hunter under saddle, reining. He was just awesome and mm. just a, a great horse to be around, you know. Mm. Just a great horse. Yeah. Gee, but there's just that your training. I just think for myself, looking at these great horses that have had strong show careers, obviously they've had great owners as well, which has helped. Mm. But just that foundation that you've given a lot of these great horses that are still out there you know, today can just roll in and, and that training is just so solid. So it's a testament to your program. But, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, we were talking before about confirmation of horses and, and you know, about what you like in a horse and, and, you know, maybe what we don't like. And I just think your one thing I, I love about your training style is it's never, like I've said all kinds of things in your arena, breeds, educate, like just, you know, things in there that every other trainer would be like, sorry, I'm not going to train your horse. And you, if they've got the right mindset for it, you will train them. And I have seen you train some unbelievably untalented horses to do things that other people would probably just wouldn't even bother. So tell me a little bit about that, you know, your philosophy on that, you know, if they've got a good mind that you can you can teach them to do things and, and successes that you've had in that horses that maybe weren't set up to be great that have been. Correct, yeah. It's, um, it, it's true. I've had a lot of horses that have been quite difficult. In fact, when I started at Green Hill, the horses I got on most... Uh, got on best with were the highly strung horses and the Morndeck line because they're a cutting bread line uh, from memory um, they're a little bit more edgy a little bit more switched on and that and again for some reason I seem to get on with those horses like so two of the horses I won the MPHA Futurity on they're, they're cutting bread mm-hmm. you know? uh, it's weird but anyhow um, but the horses yeah like I mean I, I spoke earlier to to you Steph before our interview about a, a particular horse I had called Green Hill Showgirl and she had bad confirmation. Um, we used to call her Green Hill Spare Parts. She had <laughs> a bit of this, a bit of that. It, it, she just wasn't put together well. She was an average mover. But as I trained her, I was able to get the most out of her movement. And she went on to do so well in her career as well. Also, so, um, and she, I think I saw her, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago and she could just still lope down. She was an older horse, but she could still lope and mm. do a trail and all that sort of thing. But getting back to the original question about various horses I've had over the years that have been quite difficult, um, yes, I have continued on with those. Now, when I talk about being difficult, I'm not talking about a horse that's going to rear and, and flip over on top of you or try and buck you off every day. I'm just talking about horses that don't want to get with the program, that want to keep their head in the air, that want to shake their head or swish their tail. And 
They just don't want to work for you. So you've just got to nurture those horses like some people that work for you. Some people are just horrible to have work for you, but if you can just be persistent with them for a little while longer and see if they start to change their attitude, then you can get a lot out of that person or a lot out of that horse. I have one in here in particular which has been quite difficult, but and you've seen him, you rode him a year or so ago, but he's just getting better and better and better. And I love that challenge, how, how they do actually change over time. Um, and you can't change that by being harsh on a horse. You, mm. you, you, this is where you've truly got to work with a horse and accept those little progresses that you have. It may take a little bit longer, but most, well, a lot of the times you can get there. As a, just for the general public listening to this, and you've been a horse trainer for a long time, general, as a general statement, to take a green horse to a one-handed finished, let's say, Western riding horse or a reigning horse, how long does that horse need to be in training for? And I, when I say training, like staying with you for full-time training, not going home and being ridden intermittently, what would you say is, it, is a, an, an appropriate amount of time? Okay, so I would think between 10 months, 10 and 12 months yeah. to get to be a one-handed uh, broke horse, okay. you know, and that's and that, riding it three to five times a yeah. week, generally five times a week. And that's for you to be able to go and then show it one-handed. What about for the general public? Oh, okay. I'm, <laughs> Do you know I'm, what I mean? Like this, I, I just talking about this for people that might be listening that have no concept of how long it actually takes to train one and they yeah. want to send a horse off to a trainer for two months and say, oh, then I want to go to the reigning maturity and it, it's just oh, not how just it works. Yeah. But like as a, you know, for an easy trainable horse, mm. you know, 10 to 12 months, then the owner might be, and if the owner is consistently coming to ride it, but, you know, if someone says to you like, hey, David, I want to go and show um, – in the, the non-pro futurity or the non-pro derby, yeah. how long do you need that horse for? Well, generally I was only lucky enough to have horses about 12 months, so yeah. I'd train them up in that time. Ideally two years would be fantastic, yeah. you know, but that's not the reality because people are limited by the, the money that they have. Mm. So, And that's always been a challenge, you know. Yeah. That being said, I've never pushed a horse further than it can go to to meet an owner's time frame. That's mm. one thing I've never, ever done in my career. Yeah. The other thing that I, I do like when I'm training a horse is for the owners to come up and ride with me on that horse. Yeah. I'm a firm believer and in, in being able to have, or I'm a firm believer in my training to be able to have a rider get on that horse, make some mistakes, then for me to get back on that horse and do the correct thing. Mm. You are never going to... Um, wreck a horse, as a lot of people tend to say, you know, David, I'm not sure if I should hop on the horse. I don't, I'm scared of wrecking him. You'll never wreck a horse unless you abuse it. Mm. Yeah. And that, that's that's a fact. So I have that confidence in my training that a person should be able to get on and ride through the progress of mm. uh, that horse's training. Yeah. So going back a little bit, um, you know, part of me doing this podcast is to talk to professionals or people that are in the industry, whether it's, you know, the reining or, or any kind of industry involved in horses. But when it comes to, you know, people bring you their horse to train and then the money runs out and they have to take it home. And you've just got to a point with a horse that you go, oh, we're getting somewhere this horse is really special. Or they take it home and then next minute it's at someone else's place. Or next minute they've sold it and the new owner's taking it somewhere else. How have you navigated your way through that and how 
do you deal with that? Because I know, you know, and I've watched alongside you when that's happened to you or I or other people and it's, at the end of the day, like, people are going to do what they're going to do and, you know, when it's a financial thing, we can't help that. But as a professional, I, I think you've always maintained a, you know, a professionalism about you when those things happen. But how do you keep that in check? Because it's pretty tough. Welcome to the life of a horse trainer. <laughs> that is the reality of it. Um, and it's true. I've, I've had many horses come here that are just so, so talented that the money runs out and then those horses never get to their full potential. I, I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me, but it's something that you've just got to accept. Mm -hmm. On the very odd occasion, I've had horses progressing really well. The owners have been very, very happy with the horse. Uh, they'll take the horse home and then you'll see it at someone else's place and you think, why? What? You know, I, I don't mind that, but... Just let me know why. Don't tell me your horse is going really good in that and mm. you're happy with it and then you take it to someone else's place. That's only happened one of, you know, a couple of times, you know. It's... But that when that happens, though, like as a trainer, it does make you, it brings self-doubt, it brings thoughts into your mind that you go, well, am I not doing a good enough job if I've done something to upset them? But it's, you know, how do you, like you just pick yourself up every day and go, oh, well, that's just, like was there a time when that did affect you more? Have you, you, you were a very positive person. Is that just how you've always managed to just do do this for as long as you can? It, it's a good question and I've never doubted myself um, and I, I haven't gotten very upset about it, I must say. I know that the horses have performed really well here. Mm -hmm. uh, if they've taken... If they're taken away and take to another trainer, I can't understand it, but I don't dwell on that. As I said, that's just the life of a horse trainer and that. But I know in my own heart that I've done the correct job uh, by the horse and certainly by the owner. Mm -hmm. And as I said, it's it's very, very rare that's, that's actually happened, but... Mm. It certainly doesn't worry me. Mm. Certainly okay. does. No, if if it, if I if I was a trainer that was only training a horse two times a week, um, the results weren't there. Well, then I'd certainly blame myself because I know I'm just a lazy bugger <laughs> and um, am not putting that work in on that horse. Yeah. But um, I've always put the work in on the horses. Mm. And that being said, too, putting the work in on the horses is also knowing when to balance it and take the work off the horses. So you'll be paying for a week's training, um, so five days riding. If those horses are going particularly well, you might bring it back to four days, on the odd occasion, three days. Mm -hmm. But those times always get made up at the horse show because I don't charge for extra money for going to a horse mm. show, so it all evens out in the wash. But you can't just keep training and training and training and training you, you've right. got to change things up a bit and that's mm -hmm. where they'll well I don't actually go out on trail rides I don't have time <laughs> to do that I would love to do that but that's where they'll get the time out in the paddock to do whatever nothing. they want yeah just yeah. eat the grass and that and it's that's a big part of your training knowing when to back off as well so yeah. so um jumping forward a little bit you've now wound things up as a horse trainer You've come full circle. You've had this amazingly successful career over, this, you know, the last 40, 50 years. Um, earlier last year you had a big 
knee surgery. It's not the first time you've had knee surgery. You've had, you know, I was talking to Kate Elliott the other day as well, talking about wear and tear on your body and it it does, you know, you're 60 years old now and I think 65, holy dooly, I was being generous. <laughs> 65 years old 66 now. 66 this year. <laughs> 66 this year. So, you know, you're very fit and able though at 66 years old and but last year you did have this knee surgery and we were all, you know, it was I'm going to have two, three weeks off, whatever it was, and I'm going to get back to it. And then, you know, you got infection and, and just kind of never, it, it took a lot longer to heal than what you'd anticipated. And during that time, and I hope you're okay talking about this, but it sure. was like you, and I'm actually as sad as it was that you chose to retire when we spoke about it, I'm like, I'm so glad that you're doing it when you're able-bodied and you can actually go and enjoy life. And it was almost like you sat back and went, oh, so many amazing things that I want to do with my life and I, I need to do them now because I feel like you're going to live forever. But, you know, there's going to come a time when you haven't got such spring in your step and you're going to go, well, oh, Joel, I've done is wheel of wheelbarrow up and down this hill here at Glenburn and ridden in the arena and gone to horse shows and you're – you know, you've met a, a fantastic woman in your partner, Sandra, who's just given you this zest for life that, you know, it's amazing. And just tell me a bit about that, you know, as that happened where you made that choice that you didn't want to train horses full time. Sure. Um, you're right. I did have surgery last year. It was just a, a very simple surgery after having my knee replaced about seven years ago. Um, this was just to clean up a little bit of arthritis in my kneecap. And I had the surgery on, I think it was a Tuesday, got this bad infection. The following Saturday, um, they took me into the hospital. They didn't have an operating theatre, so they had to put me on a bed and no anaesthetic or anything. They just cut my leg open again and pushed all the anaesthetic, pushed all the uh, infection out and so forth. Um, it's, it's not as bad as what it sounds like because where they'd cut the leg open, everything was numb, like all the nerves had been cut and so forth. But the, the hardest part was when the surgeon was pushing on my leg and I remember having four nurses there and <laughs> they just they came to observe and one nurse is holding my hand and she's squeezing my hand more than I was squeezing, <laughs> squeezing hers. And uh, poor Sandra, oh, my God, I'll never forget Sandra just sitting in the chair next to me in that. I don't know what was going through her mind, but, um, yeah, it was pretty lousy. But anyhow, the next day they had to open me up again and do a washout, and then my infection results were still skyrocketing. They were like 280, um, the infection rate and or the numbers, and it's supposed to be three or four, so the infection was quite serious. And then the following week they had to open my knee up again uh, because it was still getting bad and um, anyhow cut a long story short I was in hospital for I don't know six or seven weeks uh, then I had had to go into rehab after that and spent two weeks in rehab and whilst I was in rehab you wouldn't believe it I got a viral infection so for about four or five days, no one could come into my room other than if they were in PPE gear. Uh, the food was handed through the door. Um, it, it was horrible. God, that was horrible. And I was going to, I was thinking of stop. I wanted to stop showing horses before I was 70. So in the next five years, I was, I was going to do that. But just with all the problems with my knee, um, 
and meeting Sandra. Sandra and I have been together nearly two years now. We met through dancing. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't know this, but I, I, her and I met through rock and roll dancing. We, we do lessons, we go to social dances, and we've had a wonderful time together. So uh, by stopping the showing, uh, it's enabling me to have more of what I would call a normal life. <laughs> In fact, we went down to the beach last Saturday and I said to her, normally in January, we're always doing shows and I've always envied clients that would come to a show and say, we're going down to the beach now. And I'd be stuck at the whole show, which I didn't mind. Still sand. And yeah, you know, that's right. But last week we went to the beach. We spent the whole day on the beach and it, it was something, it was really a really good experience, really good experience. But look, I've, I've decided to stop showing horses I still want I'm training a couple of horses just two horses or three horses five horses no no no, <laughs> can't no. keep a good man down but, uh, but I do enjoy doing that I, I'd forgotten how much that I really do enjoy training the horses um so I'll still do that I love doing my lessons I'm doing a lot of clinics and that so so I'm still doing that involved within the horse industry and that which is great so so we were talking a little bit before about this as well and I I really it would be easy to look at you know what you know your knee happened and 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 it got you down you know what I mean like we were all and it got us all down I think but you just said to me before I don't regret anything in the life that you led prior to this and it's it's so special to hear that because it would be easy to get to where you are now and kind of you know we've spoken about this before like the industry it's small in the scheme of things you know people chop and change flavor of the minute and it would be easy to become I guess resentful a little bit when you've been involved for so long and kind of you know giving it up and going ah you know screw that I wasted my whole life doing that and you don't have that outlook at all like you you're it was your life training horses and showing horses everyone was involved in it and I'm so happy for you now though that you've found someone that you're happy with that you're actually going and doing all these normal things in life and I hope that you you know you never stop wanting to be involved in in the horse industry some way or another because I know you know you have such a massive impact on so many people it would be a real loss um, to not have you sort of still with that passion to, to help us all because, you know, I know for myself, like, I would I would be very lost if I didn't have you to call on. So, um, you know, do you think that there will be a time when you, you know, it, will it be when you can't hobble out to the arena anymore? Do you think that will be it? Do you think, you know, that horse is in your blood, it's just always going to be there? It's always going to be there. Um, as I said, it's a passion. Mm. I still have the passion. Um, I have had such a great career it's I feel so fortunate it's been a great career I have so many highlights I have plenty of lows as well there's no doubt about that um I'm I'm very happy that I'm finishing my showing career under my terms um I feel very fortunate that I can do that I feel fortunate people still want me to help train their horses people that want like yourself want me to help um give you advice on getting the best out of your horse i i have no reason to complain whatsoever i feel very very blessed that i've been able to do that sort of thing and and being involved for so long you've made some phenomenal friends yeah 
um, you know, what does that mean? Those relationships, you know, we've got, we both share a very special friend in Melanie Dennis, mm-hmm. who I wish she was here with us today. <laughs> um, but you know, do you do you have friends outside of horse riding, David, or are all of your friends you know, horse riding friends? Uh, no, generally. Well, three years ago, I only had horse riding friends, yeah. which I love dearly. Um, since I've started dancing, I've have a different group of friends, mm-hmm. and it was nice to sort of see what other people talk about and all that sort of thing. And it's been great; it's been been terrific. So. Um, I have, um, again, I'm lucky. I have two different groups of friends. So we go to social dances. There'll be like two, 300 people there. Um, they'll have a live band and that, and we're, we're tending to do this maybe twice a month. That's what we're trying to do at the moment. So it's a totally different group of people, but they're always interested in what I was doing or what I do as, as a career and what I was doing in my showing career and that. So, um, yeah, I have two different groups of friends, which is wonderful. I've also got to say too, the Goulburn Valley Reining Horse Association, they were so generous in letting me run my final um, performance at their recent show uh, a couple of months ago. And the emotions that ran through me, the people in the stands, the people in on their horses in the marshalling area, watching me go through and doing that run was incredible. And a video will come out of it, um, so we'll put that on Facebook at some point. But I remember through that day, and I said this when I was doing my run, I um, through the day people were asking me, how are you feeling about having your final run? And I, I, I kept saying, I, I don't really have many emotions at all. And I, I couldn't explain it, but there was no real positive or negative emotions running through me. But what got me was when I came through that door, as I said, seeing everyone in the stands that had come to see me riding my events, seeing the people in the marshalling area on their horses, and then jogging into that arena, the judges up in the chair there, Anthony Ross and Scribe, and before I, I was going to run pattern five, so I jogged in, I stopped in the middle of the arena, And I looked up at the crowd and I just had to tell them that story about not having any emotions prior to coming in. And as I was jogging in, all these emotions started to fill my body and I'm feeling it now. My body is tingling now. I stopped in the middle of the arena and said to everybody, I had no emotions coming in, but seeing everyone here now... I am just absolutely full of emotion and I can feel myself <laughs> getting all, all worked up here now. But it was you, just a beautiful, beautiful moment. You evoke emotion in people though, I think, because you are so passionate. You were the only person that I know that it, it wouldn't matter who was in the ring showing, you will always be at the gate if you can, whether you've given them one lesson, no lesson, 10 lessons. If you see someone struggling, you're always the first person to go and offer a helping hand. You're just so genuine and compassionate and kind with your time and your knowledge and and people you know everyone has felt that at some point or another so you know i I wish we could have done more for you on that day like there's you know um 
I'm sure more people in Australia would have loved to have been there to cheer you around on your on your last run. So it was very special, and thank you to the Golden Valley Reining Horse Association for facilitating that and um, you know providing you with the Living Legend Award as well, which is proudly hung in your kitchen here with many many more buckles <laughs> displayed on it. Um, so you know, David, I, th- I think we've, you know, we've covered so many topics here and it's been really fantastic talking to you. Any closing points you want to add before we finish this up? Closing points. Yeah. Um, that's a good question too. So closing points would be the young trainers that are coming through now to make sure that you are methodical in your training, staying true to yourself And what I mean by that is if a a client's putting pressure on you to get a horse ready for a particular show and that horse isn't ready, you stay true to yourself. You train that horse and take it as far as you can in the time frame that it takes. You do not go overtraining your horse. In fact, when you overtrain your horse, the horse's training regresses. So um, always take your time. And also, too, be very... Um, giving of your time to other people because those people are going to always be coming back to you and they're the ones that will be promoting your business when they're riding their horses. They're the ones putting you on stage there as well. I've always found giving lessons or helping people at a horse show, they may not even be clients, but I've always literally enjoyed doing that helping someone being able to give that help because i know people have helped me over my career and now i feel the chance to give that back so it's very important i think you know to to continue to help the younger generation and and all whether they're young or older whoever it is coming through because at the end of the day someone gave us their time and energy to to help us develop our skills and if we don't pass that knowledge on it's going to be lost and you know we're not out there curing cancer we're riding horses it's meant to be shared and enjoyed it's a passion so we might as well make it a, a fun experience by helping those around us yeah absolutely absolutely right. yeah right. well thank you so much david oh, it's pleasure. been a really great chat and if anyone wants to get in touch you're on all the social media david norbury training stables you are located here in king lake indoor arena so rain hail or shine we can ride and still giving lessons clinics also doing clinics around australia so I cannot recommend him highly enough. If you want to get in touch to book a clinic, David Norbury. Um, And thank you so much, David. And I can't wait for my next lesson. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks so much, Stephanie.